0: Without question, the Gospel of John makes rich use of both the Jewish scriptures and the feasts of the Jewish liturgical calendar. In this double-feature program, we'll speak with Michael A. Days about his two monographs on the Gospel of John. In his book, Quotations in John, Days examines three quotations from Isaiah along with three remembrance quotations that together form an inclusio within the Book of Signs. In an earlier monograph, Feasts in John, He suggests that originally the feasts were sequenced into a single liturgical year, marking the imminent coming of Jesus' hour. Join us as we take a deeper look at the fascinating Gospel of John with Michael Days. You're listening to New Books and Biblical Studies, a channel of the New Books Network, and I'm Michael Morales, your host. Michael A. Days is Walter G. Mason, Professor of Religious Studies at the College of William and Mary, USA, where he teaches courses in Early Judaism, The Origins of Christianity, in the New Testament for both the Department of Religious Studies and the Program in Judaic Studies. Michael, welcome to New Books in Biblical Studies.
1: Glad to be here. Thank you.
0: Michael, you've done a lot of work on the Gospel of John. Tell us more about yourself and how you got interested in John.
1: Um, I got interested in John during my doctoral work at Princeton Theological Seminary. Um, I went there for my doctoral work because I wanted to study under James Charlesworth. And as some may know, James Charlesworth is primarily known for his work with non-canonical material and the way that relates to um, to the New Testament. Um, and that's uh, what I went there to study. As I was doing that, however, his interests had focused uh, for several years on the Gospel of John, and he also um he gave a fantastic seminar during my coursework um uh, my grad coursework on the Gospel of john and I just kind of picked that up and um and uh with the kind of other things i was um uh doing with charles worth decided to um that I would approach it. Again, in light of Second Temple Judaism and the, the larger bodies of literature um, that are available uh, to assess it. And so that's what uh, what brought me into it. That was rather then um, reinforced when um, I finished my doctorate on a Fulbright in Jerusalem. And I had the opportunity to spend most of my time at the École Biblique there, and was able to write a second, uh, a smaller master's thesis known as an élève Titulaire uh, under another uh, French Dominican uh, biblical scholar whose work is also known in John, Marie-Emile Boimard. Uh, and so by the time I got through with my doctoral work, I, um, on the one hand, I was invested in the Gospel of John. And secondly, I, I began to have all this these seeds of material um, that I've been working out over the years since.
0: Your recent monograph is called Quotations in John. Uh, you look at two sets of quotations that provide a double frame for the first half of the Gospel of John or the so called Book of Signs. Tell us about the first set of quotations related to the Book of Isaiah and their function in the Gospel of John.
1: Sure, and perhaps uh, just as a
0: preliminary to that, I could.
1: Um, say one or two things about my approach. Uh, much work has been done on the the biblical quotations in the Gospel of John. There are less quotations in the Gospel of John than there are in the Synoptic Gospels. But for some reason, <laughs> uh, which is a mystery to me, uh, and I'm part of it, um, Exeges have been focused on revisiting the quotations that occur in the gospel of john um, the The uh, research started as early as August Franca in eighteen eighty five and it is still going strong with different methodologies as we speak here. Um, I noticed uh, when I was working with those quotations that uh by and large they were each um, engaged individually, almost atomistically. That is, uh, um, an exegete would go from one quotation to the next to the next uh, and, um, and deal with all the exegetical and theological issues that may arise in the, uh, from the texts. Um, but I also noted that among some of them, there were features shared between them. And this is where these two frames come in. For instance, and this this will be leading into the question you asked me. For instance, of all the quotations in John, there are just three uh, that are introduced by being explicitly ascribed to the prophet Isaiah. That is, it doesn't say as the scripture says. It says as the prophet Isaiah says. And those are in chapter 1, verse 23. It's a quote quotation of Isaiah 43 by John the Baptist. And then two of them in chapter 12, um, verses 38 and 40. Um, uh, one is Isaiah 53, verse 1, and the, the last one is Isaiah 6:10. So I noticed there's a cluster, so to speak, where these three quotations share a peculiar feature that you won't find in the others, perhaps. More could be gained by, by revisiting them as clusters rather than as individual quotations, looking at them in the contexts they create within themselves. And the second, um, well, I'll talk, I'll talk about the second when you ask me that later for the second part of the book. Um, but what I've noticed with each of these, um, is that they, uh, formulate certain literary de- literary devices in the first part of the Gospel of John. It's typically called the the Book of Signs, chapters one through twelve, and this is um, this covers essentially the the public ministry of Jesus. Uh, for these Isaiah uh, quotations that I just mentioned, the first one in John one twenty three is the first quotation that appears in the book of Signs, and then the last two that I mentioned in Chapter Twelve are the last two that appears in the Book of Signs, and so that is uh, what um, is known uh, uh, as a figure of speech by repetition. It, it's uh, the the technical terms are e- either in Greek epanalepsis epinele- uh, or in Latin, which is uh, typically used. Is inclusio. It means a repetition uh, of the beginning at the end. And what it signals is that there's something going on in the narrative between these two, uh, uh, between the quotation at the beginning of the Book of Signs and then at the quotations at the end of the Book of Signs. Somehow they resonate with one another and uh, uh, across those first 12 chapters, and so I set out to find out what that might be. Now, uh, with that background to your question, with the Isaiah quotations, here is what I noticed and here is what I've argued, uh, and um, I'll forbear uh, the details and just um, tell you what I've argued for each. When John the Baptist uh, recites the first, Isaiah 43, he says, I am a voice of one crying in the wilderness, make straight the way of the Lord. I argue that this is a metaphor for a call to faith. Essentially, what John the Baptist is doing at the beginning of the narrative is calling all of the Jews that that Jesus will encounter after to believe in him. When then you go to the end of the book of signs in chapters 12 verses 38 and 40, the first thing you have at the end of all of this is a wholesale rejection of Jesus by the Jews, followed by this second quotation of Isaiah, Isaiah 53 verse 1, and here is where Isaiah says to the Lord uh, in a a rhetorical question, Lord, who has believed our report, and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? Now, if they are answering one to another, the first is a call for all to believe as Jesus is about to begin his public ministry. The second is a lament that no one had at the end of that ministry. And then the third, in Isaiah 6.10, um, there's a lot of exegetical issues to deal with that because it's very anomalous when compared to the biblical versions, the biblical renderings. But it opens up in John by saying, uh, he has blinded their eyes and hardened their hearts, but lest they see with their eyes, discern with their hearts, turn, and I should heal them. And um, I argue along with others that the he in question, the one doing the blinding and the one doing the hardening, is in fact the ruler of this world. Uh, the, a term used for the devil in the Gospel of John. And so if you take all of these three together, uh, the story that's being told in this epinolepsis or, or inclusio is first John the Baptist calls all to believe. By the end of Jesus' public ministry, Isaiah laments no one had. And then, uh, the, Reincarnate Jesus, who's speaking in the Isaiah quotation uh, of Isaiah 6, he tells Isaiah, here's the reason. It's because the ruler of this world has blinded eyes and hardened hearts, so they could not receive the message and, um, that Jesus has made during his public ministry, um, uh, along with the signs that came with it. So, to to answer your question, then, I'm looking at the the Isaianic quotations as an inclusio that tells that story in the first part of the Gospel of John.
0: The second or inner frame of quotations you refer to as the remembrance frame. Tell us about these quotations.
1: Yes. Um, I call them the remembrance quotations because uh, here's the peculiar feature among these. The peculiar... Peculiar feature with the others was that they were explicitly ascribed to Isaiah. With these, all of them are in some way um, noted as having later been remembered by the disciples. And so I call them the remembrance quotations because the peculiar feature these three share uh, is that they are all said, and no, no other quotations in John, are said to do this. These are all said to have, at a later date, been remembered by the disciples of Jesus. Now, interesting about these is that the first one that appears is the second one that comes in the book of Signs in John two seventeen. 17. Uh, it's a quotation of Psalm sixty nine ten, uh, which I'll get to in a second. The last two of these, and there's three of them, are the second uh, are are the second last two in the book of signs. They come; they're tucked right before the Isianic quotations that we just talked about, and so they too form another epinelepsis or inclusio between, in this case, between chapters 2 and 12. And this inclusio is tucked immediately within the inclusio formed by the uh, Isaiah quotations. And so that was interesting to me um, because that that formulates another type of literary device known as a chiasmus. And that is where you have two inclusios, one tucked immediately within the other, that when they unfold, unfold in an A, B, B, A scenario. And it implies that um the tale told in the one somehow relates to the tale told in the other. And so when all of this is said and done, one needs to see how the two might be related and that will get um that will lead to uh the theological implications at the end but with the remembrance quotations let me tell you what they are uh first in John chapter 2:17 uh there is a quotation of Psalm 69 verse 10 this comes right after the the incident in which Jesus protests in the temple, and here it, it says that his disciples remembered. Uh, and then it quotes, "Zeal for your house will consume me." The second uh, and third of these quotations occur in chapter twelve, and they both occur as Jesus is entering Jerusalem on a on the foal of a donkey uh, for the final Passover, and they Uh, her back-to-back, just like the last two quotations ascribed to Isaiah do. The first is in John 12, verse 13, and it's uh, a quotation of Psalm 118, verses 25 and 26. Essentially, um, the the crowd of pilgrims that go out to to greet Jesus rehearse or recite, uh, Blessed is the one who comes in the name of the Lord. And then the second one, which comes uh, right after that, is a quotation of Isaiah, uh, excuse me, not Isaiah, but of um, Zechariah 9, uh, in 9-9, uh, in which it, uh, the way John renders it is, Fear not, daughter of Zion, behold, your king comes to, uh, sitting upon a foal of a donkey. And all of these in each case are said immediately after to have been remembered by the disciples at a later date. Now, the peculiar thing about these, which is not evident on their surface, is that all of them, at least as I've argued them, have royal connotations about Jesus. That is, they're in some way showing him to be a king. Um, The first one. Psalm 69, 10. This occurs right after the temple cleansing incident, and immediately after it occurs, there's um a discussion or a debate that Jesus has with the Jews in which Jesus says to them that if they destroy the temple of his body, he will raise it uh, um, at some future point. He will raise the sanctuary of his body, and this is where he is forecasting that his resurrection would be akin to the raising of a new sanctuary, a new temple, peculiar in the quotation of psalm sixty nine ten is that of the verb which in in the Jewish scriptures is past tense is Turned by John into future tense. That is, if you were to read the Hebrew or the Greek um, uh, of the Jewish scriptures itself, it would read, Zeal for your house has consumed me. John changes that into, Zeal for your house will consume me. Putting all those all together, and with a lot of details omitted here, what I argue is that this quotation foresees that upon Jesus' resurrection, he will be inaugurating or raising a new temple in lieu of the brick-and-mortar one that was there standing. Now, in ancient Near Eastern mythology, uh, and actually in political propaganda, the raising of a new temple had very much to do with the enthronement of new kings. The two coincided when a new dynasty was inaugurated. Um, usually what occurs is that that new king, uh, indicates or signals that new d- dynasty by erecting a new temple. And so all of this, um uh, temple sanctuary imagery that surrounds the first remembrance quotation, uh, in fact, Uh, has royal connotations. Jesus is predicting that upon his resurrection, he will in some way be raising a new temple. Going to the second uh, and third of these remembrance quotations in chapter 12, each of them has an anomaly. They they actually have a number of anomalies, but I'm just picking out the ones that are important uh, for this um, discussion. Each of them has an anomaly that also has royal connotations. Uh, for the quotation of Isaiah one eighteen, uh, excuse me, of Psalm one eighteen, verses twenty five and twenty six, the way it reads uh, in in John is the the first part is uh, as you would find it in the Hebrew or Greek scriptures. Uh, blessed is the one who comes in the name of the Lord. But just as it's going into verse 26, John has uh, an anomaly. John removes verse 26 and in his place has the people say, the king of Israel. So the people are saying, blessed is the one who comes in the name of the Lord, the king of Israel. Let me go to the anomaly in the second one, and then I'll recap them both. In the second one of Zechariah 9.9, it reads, Fear not, daughter of Zion, your king comes to you sitting upon a foal of a donkey. The language of foal of a donkey is different than what one finds in Zechariah 9.9, but what it aligns with is a passage in Genesis 49 from what is known as the Jacob Oracle to Judah. And this is where Jacob is forecasting the future of the line of the tribe of Judah. Uh, and in that, there is predicted that, uh, a, um, a, uh, this was taken as a messianic prophecy in the Second Temple period, uh, that a, um, A ruler would emerge from Judah, and one of the the features of that ruler was that he would be uh, uh, associated with a foal of a donkey. Now, putting these two together, um, the mention of Jesus as king of Israel is interesting because he's typically called, even elsewhere in the Gospel of John, not the king of Israel, but the king of the Jews. King of Israel uh, I argue connotes a remembrance of the northern kingdom uh, this uh, this is the kingdom that split off from the southern kingdom after Solomon uh, and called itself Israel uh, uh, that occurs in in the books of kings and the Jewish scriptures and so w- what I suggest uh, is that when these Pilgrims are calling Jesus King of Israel. They are saying that in some way as he marches into Jerusalem, he is fulfilling all of the northern hopes for a monarch, for a Messiah that would come from the north. As far as a foal of a donkey in the second quotation, that is coming from an oracle that prophesies a ruler to come from the tribe of Judah, which represents the southern kingdom of the split. And so putting those two together, Jesus is being cast by the fourth evangelist as entering Jerusalem, fulfilling both northern and southern hopes uh, for a Messiah. Putting that together, if if I can, with the first quotation, uh, remembrance quotation in uh, chapter two, what we have in this second frame is a king coming to unite northern and southern monarchies in himself, who's forecasting that as he does that, he is going to be... uh, starting a new dynasty, that is, uh, raising a sanctuary that signals a new regime. Uh, And that uh, leads into the theological implications, because the way he's going to raise, uh, raise the new temple is by casting out the ruler of this world, who was the problem in the Isaiah
0: quotations. Taking these quotation frames together, what is the theological message?
1: The linchpin in all of this is um, is that the person that does the blinding and the hardening of hearts during Jesus public ministry is the ruler of this world, the devil Satan uh, all of these terms are used uh, elsewhere in the Gospel of John but the the term primarily is the ruler of this world. What that implies is that as Jesus is performing his public ministry, there is somebody else who's king, the ruler of this world. And as much as Jesus preaches, as well as John the Baptist, as much as Jesus uh, has signs from the Father to, to validate that he has been commissioned by the Father, as much as that occurs by the end of that public ministry there's still a wholesale rejection, and it's the and it's laid at the door of this figure who is currently the king of this age, the ruler of this of this world. So, um, by the time one looks at the Isaiahic quotations, one sees that, um, to put it bluntly, the public ministry of the incarnate Jesus is not enough for the satiric program of God. Because at its end, there is still a problem that needs to be dealt with. That's where the inner frame, the inner inclusio, the remembrance quotations, and all of their royal connotations kick in. Because whereas the first one looks back on Jesus' public ministry and kind of brings a pessimistic closure to it, the second one anticipates the next half of the book, Jesus' passion and resurrection, in which he's going to kick this figure out. He's going to cast out uh, the the ruler of this world and establishes himself as king of a united monarchy uh, that is going to inaugurate uh, or raise a new sanctuary uh, to signal uh, his. Uh, his uh new dynasty. Uh, and what that does it does a number of things uh theologically but let me just mention uh, two uh very briefly. The first is in the uh, in the theological discussion of Christology in the Gospel of John. It says uh it 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 affirms that the death of Jesus, is essential to the Christology of the Gospel of John. Now, that may seem uh, odd if if you're not a Johannine scholar, but within Johannine scholarship, there have been voices, uh, not so much at present, but uh, particularly mid-20th century, there have been voices that say uh, the purpose of Jesus in the Gospel of John is essentially to reveal the Father uh and he either does that by the time of his his public ministry ends or he does that on the cross as well so that anything Jesus does that is um uh, uh that is commissioned from the father has to do with him revealing god to humanity um the cross is not essential that's just the way to get jesus back to the father the way to get him home it doesn't play a large role This, um, looking at the uh, implications of these two inclusios, this sides with those who say otherwise, that in fact the cross in the Gospel of John is necessary because if it were only up to Jesus' public ministry, there would be failure. He has to cast out the ruler of this world, and that occurs with the cross. So there is a need for the soteric death of Jesus in the Gospel of John. It also suggests another a- aspect, and I'll just uh, end with this one. It also suggests that part of that, the, the, uh, the effect of that death is not necessarily expiatory. Now, I'm not denying that that's, uh, that that's the case. That is, there's a part of what Jesus does on the cross that dies for sin and dies to, um, to protect his people from God's judgment. But what this is saying is that there's an also there's also an aspect of Jesus' uh, crucifixion, that of his passion and death, that is what would be called apotropaic. Apotropaic means it's meant to ward off evil. And here we have Jesus dying in order to get rid of the evil uh, of the ruler of this world that has otherwise been blinding my uh, eyes and hardening hearts. So it has uh, it reinforces a Christology that says Jesus' death is necessary for salvation, and also that that salvation involves as much uh, the the issue of warding off evil as it does um, dying for sin.
0: Michael, you also wrote an earlier monograph on the Gospel of John called Feasts in John, related to the role of Israel's feasts. Do they play a major role in the gospel? Yes, the um there are six Jewish
1: festivals in the narrative of the gospel of John and they uh they play several important roles. I'll just mention the two that are uh uh most known. One is um they furnish imagery and themes uh that are then assimilated into the theology of the gospel of John. Um Premier among these is the festivals of Passover that occur. There are three of them that occur um, in the Gospel of John: uh, one in chapter two, one in chapter six, and then from chapter twelve to the end is Passover. Um, the festival of Passover has a commemorative aspect. It's um, and uh, that aspect is to remember uh, the. The liberation out of bondage that occurs in the story of the Israelites um, under the control of the Egyptians one finds in Exodus, and so the entire festival of Passover is uh, replete with this uh, imagery of people in bondage that need to be freed, and in as much as that can be applied to Jesus and what he is doing in his commission from the Father, it. Then brings that theological dimension uh into uh into uh John's purview that is part of what Jesus is doing is uh uh delivering people that are otherwise in bondage uh into uh into freedom to worship god uh, in the presence of god and by the way uh just tying into what we were just talking about the passover uh sacrifices is an apotropaic not an expiatory sacrifice and so all of that imagery of Jesus as the lamb of god um uh is Jesus death as warding off evil in this case warding off the judgment of god that would be coming um uh, otherwise so one one aspect of the the festivals in the gospel of john uh is to furnish imagery um that can then be assimilated to have theological implications particularly about the figure of Jesus and there are other festivals with other images um uh that that uh, enrich this um and just to mention a quick one if you look at the second half of what's what's known as the agnus Dei, uh behold the lamb of god who takes away the sins of the world lamb of god likely uh speaks of jesus as a passover lamb but not takes away the sins of the world uh passover lambs do not take away sins of the world that's done by goats uh during yom kippur and what the agnes day is is actually uh, a festal combination there's two feasts being combined and applied to jesus there and that uh the second half deals with the second goat that uh that was to be used in uh Yom Kippur sacrifices. Uh, and on that second goat, uh, that goat was not to be slaughtered like the first one, but instead the high priest was to put his hands upon the head of that goat, confer upon that goat all the sins of the people, and then send that goat out into the wilderness so that the goat literally would take away the sins of the Israelites. Well, what you have here is... Um, Uh, a combination of two images Passover, which is apotropaic and um, uh, Yom Kippur, which is expiatory uh, both being applied to Jesus, saying that when he dies on that cross, both of these things are going to be happening so that's a a very rich uh, stream, hasn't really even been tapped to its full uh, about feasts in the Gospel of John another um, uh, another um, uh, use of the beasts, another service they play in the narrative, is simply to get Jesus south. Um, Jesus uh, in the the Synoptic Gospels uh, has his itinerary entirely in Galilee, which is in the north of Israel, north of Palestine, of Palestine, um, and he. He is either in Galilee or north of there until the final Passover that brings him south into uh, Judea and Jerusalem. In the Gospel of John, you have festivals to which Jesus for which Jesus makes pilgrimage throughout the Gospel, which means that all through his public ministry, he's constantly coming south into Jerusalem, and it allows the evangelist of the fourth gospel to have Jesus speaking not just to Galilean Jews, as he would in uh, the Synoptics, and he does elsewhere in the Gospel of John, but it also has Jesus coming uh, to speak with and be in confrontation with Jerusalemites. Um, and so... Um, so, these are two of the main um uh, ways in which festivals have been seen to be significant uh in the gospel of John
0: How do these feasts relate to the motif of Jesus approaching hour in John
1: yes i i I noticed uh, uh the, the reason I wrote uh, that first monograph was I noticed yet a third um, function that feasts may play in the narrative. Um, and actually I'll, I'll explain it now in terms that I found out after I published the book that I wish that I had used in the book. Um, these probably do uh do better be- than I did in the book. Um, I I I found this by reading um a sociologist named Eviatar Zerubavel, uh, who's worked on the sociology of time. He speaks of, um, uh, in, in the way time works in society, he speaks at one point of, if, if I'm getting it um, correctly, I haven't read it for a while, and I'm not sure if I got the term right, but as I remember it, he speaks of uh, a clockwork environment, uh, clockwork environments that we all have. Uh, um, that is, things in our day-to-day routine, which are themselves regular and routine, they're not designed to be time pieces in and of themselves, but because they are so regular and routine, we often use them to tell time uh, uh, in our own lives. Uh, an example, um, when school is in session, which it's, it's not as it as, as we're speaking here, but when school is in session, my wife and I get up at six and we have breakfast and she needs to get start getting ready at 6:30 um uh, to get to school in um in time uh and so we're we're generally looking at the clock for that time but uh at 6:25 every morning a school bus picks up kids outside uh on the corner across the street from us 6:25 every morning and because it does it at 6.25 every morning, we often do not need to look at the clock. We've got a clockwork environment telling us, okay, the school bus is here. Time to get moving. That's what a clockwork environment is, where something that's not designed to be a timepiece uh, actually becomes one because it's so regular. The same thing occurs with ritual in general, uh, r- rituals that are to be done uh, periodically uh, but certainly with festivals. Uh, just to give you an example, outside the Gospel of John, in in the epistle of 1 Corinthians, Paul's uh, epistle of 1 Corinthians, at the end of the epistle, in chapter 16, he's signing off, and he's giving what are known as his, um, his travel uh, information, travel instructions, that is what he's doing, what he's going to do. And one of the things he says is, I'm in Ephesus right now, and I'm going to be here until Pentecost. Now, it could mean that there is some kind of deep, profound theological aspect that maybe there is, but actually, it's it's just Paul saying uh, a way of Paul saying I'm going to be here till May <laughs> or June. Um, uh, and uh, but for a person who thinks liturgically. They're thinking, okay, what's the festival that occurs then? So what I noticed is that festivals could have this third um, usage. They can actually mark time. And so what I also noticed about the Gospel of John was what you mentioned in the first place, is this idea of Jesus' hour. Now, Jesus' hour in the Gospel of John is the point at which he is glorified uh, by, by being crucified. Uh, and it comes in chapter 12, and then uh, that hour is elongated all the way through chapter 19 when when the crucifixion occurs. But that hour, though it comes in chapter 12, uh, is first mentioned in chapter 2 in the wedding of Cana. When Jesus' mother says to him, they have no wine, Jesus says, what to me and to you, Um my hour has not yet come and for that from that moment on you begin to hear of this hour of Jesus that is coming and all through the narrative up until chapter 12 you get references to this hour as if it's so near it's it's essentially here a uh, thing uh, language uh, where Jesus would say the hour is coming and now is when the son of man etc um and so Putting these two together, I noticed that there's a way in which these six festivals in the Gospel of John have a third um this third service of actually marking time from the beginning of Jesus' public ministry to the end, showing us how much more imminent his glorification through death is. is uh, appearing in the narrative and that's essentially what i argue for um in in that first monograph
0: so michael what's next on the horizon for you in terms of projects are you doing any further work in john
1: um i've got a lot of tributaries uh from my work on john that will keep me uh in johannine studies for a good uh for a good time further and just to mention two uh A colleague and I uh, co-organized a a conference between the College of William and Mary, particularly its program in Judaic studies, with the University of uh, Naples, Lorientale, on the reception of Jewish scripture in early Judaism and early Christianity. And there uh, we have contributions of scholars from uh, on the reception of Jewish scriptures in Second Temple Judaism, Rabbinic Judaism, New Testament, Patristic period, all the way into the medieval period, and my contribution there is on the go- the scriptures in the Gospel of John. So I'm uh, I'm still working on those themes there. Also, um, I have been involved with the, the uh, Catholic Biblical Association's task force on, uh, the use of the Old Testament in John. And with a colleague, Gregory Glazoff, we are now, uh, editing, uh, the contributions that have been made to that over the years. Um, uh, and so, uh, my work in John uh, will continue along those lines as well. But I have two other avenues now that I'm, uh, pursuing. Uh, one is actually, um, the line of research from which a lot of this other material in John has emerged. While doing the uh, doing research on the Gospel of John, I've had a kind of parallel track of research on ritual uh, in Second Temple Judaism, particularly um, uh, ritual as, as it appears in the Dead Sea Scrolls and uh, um, the Kiribit Qumran um, um, manuscripts. Um, this was sparked a lot by, uh, as it has with a lot of scholars, by the work of Catherine Bell on ritual. Uh, and in particular, I've been inspired by a work uh, written by Ithamar Gruenwald, and I've been working with him um, uh, on this uh, for years. He, uh, Well, not on the book, but I've been working on the, the issue. But the book he wrote in 2003 was Rituals and Ritual Theory in Ancient Israel, where he posits his own theory on ritual and applies it uh, to Bible, Mishnah, Second Temple period, uh, uh, Judaism. And so I'm going to be, uh, I'm now turning my research uh, back to those areas, and I'm particularly interested on the broader use of uh, festal uh, ritual in second tem- in the Second Temple period. Uh, and then last, uh, I have been very interested uh in uh the origins of Christianity, particularly the first decades uh, uh after the crucifixion of Jesus. Um uh, and I have been uh waiting to get through these uh Gospel of John Monographs so that I could turn my attention to them. And um so right now I'm speaking with uh Oxford University Press about a a monograph that will deal with those early years. In short, uh, when you look at the the charica- characterization of the early followers of Jesus in the Acts of the Apostles, uh, it, two things appear. that One is that they uh, began in Jerusalem. The other is that they looked very much like uh, the Jewish group known as Essenes. I think there are other ways to explain those, and so I'm looking forward to exploring that um, more um, uh, in my future research.
0: Michael, great to spend time with you. Thank you for being with us. Thank you very much. right, friends, you've been listening to New Books and Biblical Studies, a channel of the New Books Network. Until next time, goodbye.